0: Something about that story that never gets old. I want you to read with me from Luke chapter 15. A story that many of us know as the uh, story of the prodigal son, or often we should think of it as the, the parable of two sons. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Lord God, thank you for allowing us to gather here together in your presence. One of the things that we love to do when we get together here is to lose ourselves in Scripture, to read your word and to to hear what has been written, what has been read through the centuries and what we can learn from. But that's not really why we're here. Another thing that we love to do is to, to sing to you and to rehearse songs that uh, tell us about great truths. And some of those songs uh, warm our souls and remind us of, of times when you have broken through in our lives. And that's not the central reason why we come here. We come here to meet you. So my prayer today, very simply, is that we would meet you and find you as we dive into your word, as we worship you, as we gather together as a community, but that we wouldn't walk away from here, having failed to do the central thing that draws us, to meet with you, the God of the universe. Hear us in the quiet spaces of the morning. Hear us in the the cries that we make out to you as we are grappling with your word, as we are thinking over our lives. Break through. Break past all of the clutter that sometimes fills our schedules and all of the sounds that can fill up our thoughts and all the sights that we've taken in over the last week and allow us to hear you and meet you and know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, there was a cartoon strip I don't know if you ever read any of the cartoons anymore when I was a kid. I always read that first, and now it seems the older I get, it's the part I look at the least. But there was a cartoon strip for uh, for better or worse. And in this particular strip, the dad was coming into a room where his teenage daughter was sitting on the couch watching television and munching on some popcorn. So he decided to sit down next to her and help himself to some of the popcorn. And as he was sitting there, this little thought balloon rises over his head. And so we can see the conversation that's going on in here, but that he never speaks. And in in that first thought balloon, he's thinking, I remember when she was so young. I held her in my arms and loved her, and it was beautiful. And then we go to the next frame, and and. The frame shows this next progression of his thinking. It says, now, now I look at her. She's all grown up and such a beautiful girl too. I wonder what she would think if I held her like I used to and I hold her again and tell her that I love her. He finally concludes that she would just be uncomfortable if he did that. And while the dad is thinking through all of these movements and, and developments and, and this conversation that is silent in his head, the final frame of the cartoon reveals what the daughter is thinking. And so this thought balloon pops up over her head, and she's thinking, I wonder why my dad never hugs me anymore. And it ends. It's not easy to know how to be a good father, is it, Dad. One of the best examples we find of fatherhood, of course, is whenever we look at any of the scriptures that tell us about our Father in heaven. And the story that most clearly reveals God the Father's heart is the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son or about these two sons, two very different sons here in Luke 15. Uh, This morning, we're in the second week of a series of messages that we are calling Living in the Gospel. Several of our small group Bible studies have just launched this past week, uh, working their way through a short book that accompanies this series. It's Tim Keller's book, Gospel in Life. And, and so if you haven't gotten into one of those, you can still dive in. You're only one week behind, and, and everybody will make you feel welcome. But it's going to be a great study that we're going through together. In this second part of the series, we are looking at the relationship between the gospel and The heart. So the, the heart, the heart of God, our hearts—all of that is is part of what we're wrestling with this week, both here on Sunday morning and in several of our small groups. The parable of the prodigal son, or as it is sometimes known, the parable of the two lost sons, prompts this question: Is it possible to obey God and live a moral life, yet miss the heart of God? Is it possible? to obey God all through our lives, through the vast majority of our lives, and yet never capture the heart of God. Let's take another look at what this well-loved parable reveals. We're going to look at it from a different vantage point this time, more so uh, looking at the actions of the Father and what Jesus is revealing to us about the heart of God the Father. So four things that Jesus teaches us about his Father's heart that He wants every single one of us to know and depend on. Here's the first discovery that we make about God. He lets us go, but He never stops loving. He lets us go our own way, and sometimes we demand it, we call for it. All of our emotion heads in that way we don't always think it through carefully. Sometimes it's a well-designed plan, but he lets us go. Yet in the midst of all the confusion, he never stops loving. So we, we read the beginning of the parable and the way that Jesus sets it up. He continues and he says, there was a man who had two sons. We don't know his name. We don't know where he lived. We, we can instantly start to put ourselves in the story because we can think through either the dynamics of the family we grew up in or the family that you're in today. And this man has two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, notice how the time just flies here. This is a very uh, shortened story in order to get to the point. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. While the primary focus of the parable is on the younger son, Jesus tells us about three people in this story. First, there's the younger son who initially wants no part of the father's life, only his riches, what's coming to him, or as in the video, his trust fund, but might fit more of the modern context. Then there is the older, dutiful son who obeys the father and who comes to feel that he deserves his father's riches because of his obedience. I've always been there for you. I've always worked for you. I've slaved for you, he says. I'm the good son. You you never did all this stuff for me. And then there is the long-suffering father, who is actually misunderstood by both of his sons. This morning we're looking at this parable from the vantage point of the father. Notice his response when the younger son pulls up stakes and leaves home. The scenario that Jesus paints for us is one that is scandalous You might not think of that because you've read it so many times, or it doesn't seem so uncommon in our day and in our age. So how is this scandalous? In the ancient world, the law or the custom of progenitor was generally accepted among families. This custom held that the eldest son in the family would receive the largest share of the inheritance, often two-thirds, and then the rest would be divided up among the other siblings or sometimes just the other sons. The law of progeniture provided a way for family farms or estates to largely remain intact from generation to generation rather than being broken up among all the different family members. So there was actually a good side to this, even though it has some negative implications. But it also heavily favored whoever was the eldest son in the family, and therefore it caused resentment. The scandal is that the youngest son demands his inheritance while his father still lives. So this was going to cost. This was going to cost the father. It would be embarrassing for him to figure out uh, what everything is worth and then divide out the share that he would give to that younger son. It would also cost the older son because the estate becomes somewhat devalued as they're selling off parts of it in order to give the younger guy what he wants. And he'd have to wait for that to, to build up again. And it was scandalous in the midst of a culture where older people were honored and revered. This is an insult to the father. In effect, the younger son is saying, I wish you were dead so that I can get what's coming to me now and get away from you and get away from here forever. The father divides up the estate and he lets the younger son go. We don't find any pleading. We don't find any controls. He lets him walk away. This detail would have provided a shock factor when Jesus first told that parable. This was just not done in that kind of Middle Eastern society. Oh, he could have broken away, but he would have gone off on his own without the benefit of that third of the trust fund. We learn along the way that there are two reactions to the younger son's decision. The father never stops loving him. And the picture that Jesus paints of him is one who is waiting for his son to return home. This is crucial for all of us to realize, for this story plays out in a number of families still today. You can never run so far from God that you outrun his determination to love you. And some of you have discovered that capacity grow within your own hearts when you've let a child go their own way, even though it was against your better judgment. And you never stop loving in the midst of that. In fact, perhaps your love even grows and expands in the midst of those seasons. And you discover what God is doing inside of you in those moments. We learn along the way that, uh, along with the father's reaction... The elder brother also has a strong reaction and he resents this younger brother, even though this is not immediately understood in the parable. This is the part of the story that is pivotal, yet often missed. So hold on to this observation because we'll come back to it in a few minutes. The second thing that we discover about the father's heart is that he runs to welcome the wayward. He runs. his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The second scandalous feature was that Jesus run, that, that Jesus tells us this father runs to greet this son who has squandered everything, this wayward son. Middle Eastern culture is based on respect and, and reverence for those who are older. So the original audience would normally assume some measure of disdain toward this younger son. He's insulted rather than honored his father. So Jesus surprised the audience again when he described how this father runs toward his son when he sees him off of the the back 40 acres, beginning to make his way toward him. This is also what makes the parable so endearing we see this father's love and compassion in action. Father-son and parent-child stories reel us in because we quickly identify with the complex dynamics of parental hopes and dashed dreams of our, or for our adult children. Think of all the complexities, dads, that sometimes come in father-son relationships. You know how it starts. You look up to your dad and you say, my dad is the biggest, strongest guy in the world. He can take the top off of any jar in the kitchen. <laughs> and we say, I look up to him. I want to I be like him. And then a few years go by and you start thinking, I want to compete with my dad. I can do the things that my, my dad did and I can compete with him. And then the day comes when you think, I can do this better than my dad. And that begins to lead to another thought of saying, I want to get away from my dad. I want to get out from under my dad's thumb so that I can prove that I can do things better than him. And then along the way, something switches, and you realize life is hard, and you start thinking about the way that dad did things, and you think, maybe dad wasn't so dumb after all. And then the day comes when dad's gone, and you have this thought, thought that I've entertained many times, what would I do for one more day with my dad? They're so complex. We must remember at all times that Jesus was teaching everyone in the audience. He knew that some of his listeners were parents who would interpret through that lens. A few years ago, I had a a Jewish friend who attended here one particular Sunday, and we happened to be focusing on this same prodigal son, and knowing that he was here and that he wasn't used to the way that we use the scriptures, I introduced this story, this parable, by saying, the greatest rabbi who ever lived taught this parable. And we, we talked about the the prodigal son, and then we went out to brunch afterward, and and because I had to finish up things here, I was the last one there, and I walk into this conversation that's already going, and my friend grabbed my arm, and he said, that rabbi is amazing. Who was that rabbi? <laughs> I mean, this, this story about this father and his sons, I started thinking about my father, and, and my brothers, and me, and all the conflicts that we had, and how much I loved him toward the end, and how I miss him today, and And then he says, and who was that rabbi? And then all of a sudden it hit him. It was Jesus, and he didn't want to go there. (laughs) Turned the conversation around really fast. Jesus also knew that some people in that audience were full of shame because they had run from God in their own way. They had run off to a life of excess or thought that they would find their true destiny somewhere in the fast lane or they would do things better than the way they'd been taught. If you identify with the younger brother in this story, you need to realize that you cannot outrun God's love for you. It is one of the reasons why Jesus told this story and why it is so loved. He wants you to come home. You cannot... Undo the past, but you can begin again with him. And this particular church is filled with many younger brothers and sisters who have come home at some point to God's love and to God's grace. So here's the big idea that we're, we're moving into. We're not fully there yet, but I'm going to let you in on this now. One of the things we're going to study this week has to do with the difference between the way Tim Keller defines irreligion which is doing it your own way, and religion, which is trying to do it a moralistic way and by performing for God. And the conclusion that we end up reaching is that irreligion doesn't satisfy, and religion, at least when it's a moralistic thing, doesn't justify, but the way of the Father changes everything. Here's the third discovery in that process. He knows how to counteract shame. So think of this, what we're learning about the the heart of God. He lets us go, but he never stops loving us. He runs to welcome the wayward, and he knows how to counteract shame. This is a huge part of the story. So we pick it up again in verse 20. But while this younger brother was still a long way off, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I don't know about you, but I can't put enough emotion into those words when I read them. These are words where every sentence ought to end with an exclamation point because this father is already celebrating as he's giving the instructions to his servants. He's excited, he is filled with joy. The day that he's been waiting for has finally arrived. The wayward son has been rehearsing his speech the whole way home. He acknowledges his sin. He identifies it as being both against God or heaven and against his father. He says that he's no longer worthy to be called his father's son. In effect, he's saying that he feels like a loser. And he realizes that he's blown a fortune. And he's blown all the trust and hopes that his father had in him. But his hunger and his loneliness have begun to work in such a way that it changes his perspective. Even being a servant on his father's estate would be better than the way that he's living. It would be better than this. If I could just go home and be the lowest among the servants, they're treated so much better than the way I'm treated here. This is the language of shame. Some parts of the world are dominated by shame-based cultures. Honor comes to those who do what is right, and over the course of a lifetime, they experience it. But to encounter shame is the opposite of honor. So this young man looks upon himself with shame and knows that he has brought this shame upon himself. And in doing so, he has also brought this shame upon his father and upon his entire household. He imagines the gossipers around the neighborhood or the village who would say, oh, that's the family where that young fool went off and and they could fill in the blanks. Not only does this younger son feel this sense of shame, he wonders if his father is covered by that same sense of shame too. Many parents experience this emotion when a child runs off into their fast lane, and, and they wonder how they will explain this to their friends or to their coworkers, where your plans didn't work out, and your family isn't the trophy family that you once thought it was. They just stop talking about that child for a while, because it's too hard to explain to everybody. It hurts too much to explain, again, to those who won't understand or who will only react with judgment. And so they just stop. They talk about everybody else's kids, but not their own. And now Jesus inserts another twist in the story. This father knows how to counteract all of these feelings of shame. And notice what he does. First, he runs to his son when he sees him off in the distance. There's, there's no doubt about what his reaction will be. He is telegraphing from as far away as he possibly can. And everybody in the whole enterprise, the whole estate, can see what's going on. And then he hugs him. He throws his arms around him. This isn't just a, a little side hug, hey dad, how are you? This is a massive bear hug, and he kisses his son. Now, okay, we understand that was very appropriate in that culture, but I can imagine a dad today welcoming home a child who's wandered away for a long time, wondering if that child would ever come home, and the kisses and the hugs that would flow. And then he immediately calls his servants, not just to bring a robe, but to bring the best robe for him, and to put a ring on his finger. Uh, That might be lost in the midst of our culture, but the ring would signify that this was a son who acted with the authority of that father. The, the ring was often a signet ring and would have a little symbol in it and it can be put in the wax for a seal that would say, you're acting with the authority of the father who is a man of great wealth and of great authority in that culture. And he calls for sandals for his feet. He won't go about dressed like one of the servants, barefoot. And then he tells him to bring the fattened calf and he throws a feast and everything's in motion. He's so excited. Jesus' point here is obvious. This is how God the Father reacts when spiritually wayward children come home to him and to his way. He hears their repentant words and skillfully removes their shame. He dresses them with honor and leads to celebration. He doesn't want to, to bring up all the past and throw it in his face and chase him away again. He's so thrilled that he's home. And Jesus is telling us that everyone who understands the Father's heart is caught up in this emotion and celebration and joy. And then we discover the fourth thing that Jesus wants us to see about the heart of God. He rescues religious people from false confidence. He rescues religious people. Look at the way the story ends. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now, he heard the music. He heard the sound of dancing. He heard the laughter. And he went to some of the other servants and said, what's going on back at the ranch? I heard this ruckus. Nobody told me there was a party. Uh, Nobody called me. What, What happened here? And the servant's all excited and says, well, it all happened so fast. Your brother's home and and we're all excited because your brother's home. And he goes off. And he refused to go in. He became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father saying, look, all these years, I've been slaving for you and, and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But now this son of yours who has squandered your property with wild living, it says earlier, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And then listen to the father. My son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. While Jesus knew that some of his original audience would identify with the complex emotions of the father and that others would identify with the returning wayward younger son, others still would identify with the older brother. He knew that there were some in that audience and in every audience who had lived the life of the responsible, obedient child. And they were likely to have resented or even despised the wayward sibling who had run off and squandered everything and who had now come home. This is where some people in the church often get tripped up and where we see the brilliance of Jesus as a teacher and the brilliance of Jesus as a storyteller. Now, the father goes out not to rescue the wayward son, but to rescue the obedient son who's still on the family farm. Look at the pattern of these two sons. Tim Keller breaks it down this way The younger son chose the way of self discovery and self indulgence, the eldest son chose the way of conformity and moral performance. Yet neither son fully understood or embraced the heart of God. And then we see the outcome. The younger son was spiritually lost and far from home, while the older son was spiritually lost and still at home. The father waited for the younger son to come to an end of himself and return, Yet the father had to still go outside the feast to try and rescue the elder son from his self-righteous obsession with moral performance because he too had missed the father's joy. The younger son's broken pride had allowed him to enter into the father's joy, yet the elder son's stubborn pride had kept him from entering the celebration at all. This is a parable that was not only designed for the first century world in Israel. This is a parable for the contemporary church today. The church that we are a part of is called to reach out and to welcome back those who are spiritually lost and far from home, who are covered with shame, knowing that this reflects the heart of our Father God. The church must also provide For those who have never left, who have obeyed God, and who still think that God only welcomes us with open arms on the basis of our moral goodness. We must provide ways to renounce that pride that keeps us, too, from the heart of God. We are all called to repent, and we are all called to recapture the heart of the Father. See, many people look at this particular parable and think there's a contrast. We see the way of the wayward son and think that's what we're supposed to avoid. And this being a moralistic story, there's the way of the good son, the obedient son who stays home, that's the way we're supposed to copy. But that's not what Jesus does here. He doesn't say, reject this plan and go toward that plan. He says, they're both wrong. They both missed what the father wanted for completely different reasons. One thinking that he could carve out his own path away from all of the guidelines, all the expectations, all of the morality that the father held. The other thinks that the father will only love him if he is the most moral and it's because of his goodness and his obedience that the father loves him. And the truth is the father loves them both and runs to rescue them both in completely different ways. And what the father wants us to understand is we need to capture his heart, God's heart, not the heart of either of these brothers. So Keller says, if only we had an older brother who got this and who showed us the right pathway. And then he says, we have to look at the fourth person in the story. And the fourth person in the story is the teller of the story, Jesus, who shows us that way. Jesus, whose heart is large enough to welcome back the wayward and also to call back the prideful older brother who thinks that God loves him and he's better than his other brother because of his moralistic approach to life. It's not that God is against having good morals. It's that moralism doesn't save us. Grace does. Because moralism, even by itself, leads us into pride and arrogance. You see the, the dance that we play as a church? This is, this is who we are. This, this is that razor's edge that we walk every day, wanting people to live lives that uh, follow after God's plan and yet not get caught in the pride that can come from that. And we want to create a place where those who've wandered off and have said, I'm going to do it my own way until they are humbled can come back and they're not looked at with shame or despise, but they are welcomed back to the same place because it's the same pride that drives both brothers away from the Father. So I'd like to sit and think for a moment. Where are you in the story? Where do you fit? What's God calling you to do? Is there an attitude that should change? I li- I'm going to close in a, in a prayer in just a minute. And what I'd like to do is just create an opportunity. Sometimes we don't do confession here real well. We, we, we leave it to you know, privacy between us and God. But sometimes for a breakthrough to happen, there needs to be a moment of that. And so what I'd like to do is as I'm praying... If there's anybody who would like to stand and be included in that prayer because you realize there's something going on inside of you that God was working on, whether it's the pride of running away and needing to come back or whether it's the pride of thinking we're better than others, just stand so that God knows that you are confessing that to him and that he can break that in you and that we as a church will be healthier. Does that make sense? Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity for us to Not just rehearse scripture and not just to tell stories, but to find you. Because my prayer a half an hour ago was that we would come in here and meet you. So, Lord, in the quietness of this place, whether they're seated or whether they're standing, there are some people who want you to know that we need you to take away our shame. And we confess to you that there are are seasons in our lives and maybe even right up to this day we've been running from you saying, I'm smarter than my father, God. I can test out my own way against his. But they're coming back right in this moment. Coming back because we need your truth. Forgive us. Give us a new start. Make us whole. And there are some of us in this room who realize I'm the older sibling. I've tried to do things right. And today I saw myself in here, in this parable. Break break my heart. I confess to you my, my moralistic pride that I thought that my life was better and that therefore I was better. Or to be favored more by you. Thank you for being a God who loved me, despite the fact that my heart was hard. Make it new, make it soft, make it like Jesus' heart. God, you know our church, we desire to live in ways that honor you, and we also want to be a place of grace. So renew that vision for us. Renew that risk-taking desire to follow after the way of Jesus, the the true older brother who, who shows us the Father's heart. Make us more and more like Jesus. Take my heart and make it more like Jesus. I confess my pride, and I ask that you would replace that replace that with grace love truth compassion and desire to welcome and to restore make this church a place of grace in Jesus mighty name amen well, let me call on our ushers and we'll um receive our offering this morning and it's a great song that actually follows up on the spirit of that prayer that we were just going through asking God to search us and to know us and in the process we also find him